Welcome to the Health Fix Podcast, where health junkies get their weekly fix of tips, tools, and techniques to have limitless energy, sharp minds, and fit physiques for life. On this episode of the Health Fix Podcast, I'm interviewing Dr. Fred Moss. He's a recovering, retired psychiatrist with over 40 plus years of experience in mental health across various roles and across the world. He's known as the undoctor, and he's a fan of undiagnosing, unmedicating, and undoctrinating his clients' lives. Now, he has a very fascinating approach when it comes to psychiatry and how he sees mental health and mental health medications. In this episode, we're going to dive deep into the mental health industry, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So let's introduce you to Dr. Fred Moss. Hey, health junkies. I have Dr. Fred Moss on today, and I'm excited to talk to him about mental health, the mental health industry, and finding your voice. So what a fabulous concept here, finding your voice and the true connection between finding your voice and your mental health. So Dr. Fred, welcome to the Health Fix podcast. It's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's just a privilege and an honor to be with you. Thanks, Janine. No problem. My pleasure. You know, I have a very interesting history with with mental health and psychiatry. My mom was a mental health nurse at a VA for many years. And one of the things that she she always would say to me is all of these folks have a story and they have a voice. They want to be heard. And she just loved to listen to their stories. And so looking at what you're presenting, I thought to myself, isn't this, isn't this interesting to hear this from you as well? So tell us a little bit about how you came to, to discover the concept of the connection of not speaking your voice, your true voice, and and the 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 psychiatry aspect of things you you've had 40 years of in, of of expertise here so i'd love to hear how it kind of unfolded for you okay beautiful certainly and thank you for the question so it's actually even closer to 65 years because i was born to a family that was in disarray and chaos and the whole idea was when i arrived i was to bring joy communication and connection to that family i had two older brothers 10 and 14 years old at the time and uh, my parents and there was a disarray you know there was there was a place for me to come in and actually mend ways and create optimization in a family structure now of course i didn't know that when i was one minute old but it doesn't matter it was still my role and it's what i did for the first several years of my life you know as a a bouncing bundle of joy if you will i was you know always smiling i was able to make a room laugh i was really smart and they, they kept me precocious so I knew how to read and do math and all that kind of good stuff before I even went to kindergarten. So in school, I really I would watch I would watch at home. I would watch my brothers and parents communicate and I could see them. You know, I vividly remember being in my playpen and watching the four of them speak and think that I want to do that someday. Like I want to learn how to do that. And I thought that, of course, that's where I would learn it was in school. So when I arrived in kindergarten, that's what I was expecting. But it isn't what happened, of course. My friends were much more interested in throwing blocks and, you know, afternoon naps and stuff like that. And so um, it, I learned that it wasn't going to happen in kindergarten, but maybe it would happen in the later years. And all of a sudden I thought, well, maybe it's like the older kids in sixth grade that, that learned how to communicate. 
But of course, in sixth grade, by that time, by the time I got there, I I was actually uh, accelerated so I could have some time with the sixth graders. I learned that it wasn't happening there either. And then, you know, fast story, like it wasn't happening in junior high. It wasn't happening in high school. It wasn't happening in the conventional educational system. In the conventional educational system, uh, for which, you know, there's no teacher who had me who forgot having Fred as a student, for sure. (laughs) I was very talkative. I always wanted to communicate. I was funny. I was often bored. And so I was kind of that kid, you know. And um, uh, but the idea was I just really wanted to communicate and have open discourse. I mean, as I look back to it. And what I really eventually did was I went to the University of Michigan because I really love their helmets, actually. And I thought that that would be a great place to go. And (laughs) um, and uh, I went with the idea that, you know, there must be communication on the campuses after all. But again, in the classrooms, that isn't where it was happening. Not at all. And after about a year and a half, I dropped out and I, I got on a bus and went to Berkeley and to learn, you know, to like uh, get what my life is about. And, uh, I, you know, it was a 3000 mile ride and I just loved it. And I had a great summer in Berkeley and I did get a little bit of what my life was about, but it wasn't sustainable. And I was encouraged to come back and study again. And, um, they said there was actually a new, there was a new industry coming out and the industry was going to take the world by storm and that I would be good at it. And the name of that industry was called computers. Mm-hmm. And the only computer in all of Michigan was on the University of Michigan campus. And it was a two acre facility, essentially, that you went in and did punch cards and batch jobs and turned it in and waited to see if the program worked. And that eventually got too boring for me, too. So I ended up dropping out a second time. And when I dropped out this time, I came home and told my parents I was never going to go back to school again. Never. Why would I? It's not working. And they were happy with that. That's fine. But they got me, you know, my mom's like, you know, you got to get a job because, you know, that's what moms do. And um, she got me an application for a state mental health facility as a child care worker for adolescent boys. And frankly, Janine, that was where I learned again about communication. Very similar to what your mom said. That's what I knew inside of that facility. These kids, the so-called kids, they were seven years, eight years younger than me. And all I had to do was communicate them as if I was curious about their story, which I always was. Mm-hmm. I'm always interested, always curious, always wondering who is that person over there. And when that happened, for which they knew that I was curious, healing took place instantaneously. Mm-hmm. I knew that. I felt that. And it was not just healing of them. It was healing of me. It was healing of us. It was the healing of the whole facility. When communication and connection took place, healing took place. And I really felt that the thing I hated about that job, and I mean hated, was actually the way psychiatry was at that facility. So we would call psychiatrists when Timmy and Tony were in a tussle or if Jimmy was up too late and they would come down and interview Jimmy for like three seconds, interview us for like six seconds and go into the nursing station, write a little note. And then we'd have to go retrieve Jimmy and hold him down in the quiet room and pull on his sweatpants a little bit and jam him full of some adult grade antipsychotic, anti-anxiety, you know, cocktail. And if he was in a stupor for 24 hours, we would call that a success story. 
Well, that was so barbaric and so heinous. And by the way, just to make it very clear, is going on in most every hospital right now today still. Yep. So let's keep that in mind. This isn't something like, oh, oh my God, you had to experience that. No, this is actually happening ubiquitously all over America still. Mm-hmm. And it's happening at all ages. It's not just kids. It's, uh, you know, this chemical restraint stuff is a real problem. I decided I would go back into psychiatry, actually, so that I could bring communication to the center of that field because I knew what healing was about. And that's why I went back to school a third time. I went back with the whole intention of, of going to medical school and becoming a psychiatrist. My brother had already been a psychiatrist now, my 14 brother, 14 and older than me. And, you know, I had some shoes to fill to, in order to just follow him. We are quite different, but we, he, was, he still is a psychiatrist. And, um, and in those years, while I was in training, there was a massive paradigm shift that took place in 1987. You might already be familiar with it. That was the introduction of Prozac. So Prozac altered the entire landscape of the whole industry and brought forth the whole notion of this really weird concept called biological psychiatry, or even weirder concept of a chemical imbalance causing the issues per se. Nevertheless, I had sunken costs. I was there. I had now done my training. I came out, you know, as a psychiatrist and I was being asked to be a um, a diagnostician and a psychopharmacologist. And I, I did that, you know, I did that over the next 30 years, duplicitously, I might add. I did that with soul sacrifice. I did that with a head, you know, with a fair amount of heartache. Um, and so I've written over 100,000 prescriptions in my life. I've diagnosed, I've at least been in the chart of about 40,000 patients in my life. And None of them were really aligned with what I knew was really there. I did my very best to drive communication in, you know, in the gaps of what was being asked for me. But what was being asked for me is just make hardcore diagnosis, diagnoses and then treat with some kind of medication because that's what a psychiatrist does. If I ask you what's the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist, you more, even like even as advanced as you are, you would likely say something like a psychiatrist is the one who prescribes medicine. 100%. That's yes, yeah. That's just the difference. And I mean that that's how the thing has developed. <clears throat> eventually and I I you know, I'll um I won't bore you with too many details, but eventually this got to be too old for me. I mm-hmm. couldn't do it very much anymore. And in 2006, I started doing something that was apparently seen as radical. And what it was, was I started taking people off of medicine. I mean, if I can put them on, I can take them off. And so I took off my lower risk clients off of their medicine. And what happened? They got reliably better, way better, like way better. And in most cases, their diagnosis that they thought they had just simply disappeared. Mm-hmm. So I started doing it with a broader base and the same thing happened. And then we started learning that some people or some systems don't even want the identified patient to get better. It's very important that the identified patient stay the identified patient. So I ran into that. I learned a lot about the, or the ra- so-called radical nature of coming off of medicine and also began to see what undiagnosing could be like. Eventually, I took as many clients as I could off of medicine and closed my practice in Cincinnati and started doing traveling doctor. I was a locum tenens all over America and actually in Europe and even I did some work in in um, in um, in Thailand and Nepal as well. 
And so there I did telepsychiatry. I was ahead of my time in that field as well. And I knew that telepsychiatry was coming down the pike. I didn't know that it would become the gold standard, which it is now. But I kind of thought it would be because it's a marriage made in heaven, this telepsychiatry, this idea of having conversations like this with our clients and not even being able to touch them or not even being able to hug them or not even, you know, that psychiatry wasn't built on that in the first place. So hearing and seeing people is what psychiatry is built on. And I knew that this was a great space to work from. Anyhow, as the time went on, um, psychiatry continued to ask me to do those things. Those things, like right now in America, I cannot get a job as a psychiatrist if I don't want to diagnose or medicate. Yeah, yeah, it's unbelievable, really. Like, like this guy, like the uh, you should see my resume. My resume is ridiculous. I have a, like the strongest resume of any psychiatrist I've ever seen frankly, because I left so many jobs, but I did leave jobs because I couldn't communicate anymore. They weren't asking me to help people. They were asking me to actually keep people where they were. So the treatments and the diagnoses I learned often like advance or increase, perpetuate, and in some cases cause the symptoms they're marketed to deal with. Now, I learned this, and it's a hard thing to learn. And of course, when I learned it in the field, I wanted to scream it from the mountaintops. I wanted to shake people by their collar. But being violent about it doesn't get anything done. Screaming and telling my colleagues that they might be hurting people or telling parents that they might be hurting people by medicating their children is really a hard task to take on. Mm-hmm. The more emotional I get about it, the harder it is for those people to hear me. Yeah. And my job is to have them hear me more than to speak my truth. My truth doesn't even matter if who's listening doesn't hear me. That's true. Right. That's it's true. really important. So I um, did what I could to calm myself down and started realizing that I'm not mad at the medicines. I'm not mad at the industry. I'm not angry with doctors. I'm not angry with insurance companies or big pharma or any of that. After all, those things are just inert. They're just, they're just not, there's nothing to them. They're just part of a system. There's no such thing as big pharma. Big pharma is a concept. There's no such thing per se. There's no like big pharma over there. That's not really it. You can't have a discussion with big pharma. You can't call big pharma on the phone. You can't like write an email to big pharma. You can't do that. So I began to, I began to see that the only entryway that we have is inside of the people who are agreeing to the diagnosis that they have. It's not even the diagnostician's problem. If I tell you you're an elephant, you're not an elephant until you agree that you're an elephant. And then you are an elephant. As soon as you agree, you're an elephant. I tell you, I'm an elephant specialist. And I tell you, you're an elephant. You are not an elephant until you agree that you're an elephant. And then you go tell some people, look, I looked it up on the internet and I saw an expert and I'm an elephant because I got a big nose, a big body, and I love water and I have no memory or or I have a great memory. Okay, so you're an elephant. So now you act like an elephant and you do everything that an elephant does. Right. You because you know yourself as an elephant. And in fact, if someone tells you you're not an elephant, that's only because they're wrong. 
and they don't know yet. They haven't read the right stuff. They're not, you know, they just don't get that you've already figured out that you are. Who cares that you don't know that, that they don't know? <laughs> so that this is how psychiatric diagnoses work as well. And I really, really got a hang of that. And that's when I started, I really started to back out even a little bit further out of the conventional scene because I naturally had to. I was no longer capable of carrying the torch. And eventually created a company or a stand called Welcome to Humanity, which is my overarching <laughs> umbrella. And Welcome to Humanity is a great name. I love it. It's been here for now six or seven years. And the idea is all of the human experience is exquisite. Every piece of it, including the barbarism, including the heinous acts, including the speak of unspeakable stuff, including the terrible, phenomenally unacceptable stuff that humans do and that we do with each other. That stuff, too. It's all incredible. It's all part of the smorgasbord of what it means to be human. And if I drop off the judgment, I can see Welcome to Humanity covers all of humanity. And the more we can grasp and embrace everything about being human, the more we're likely to be able to interrelate with, interrelate with all people. Mm -hmm. Janine, the greatest threat in the world is not what we think it is. It's not a virus. It's not climate change. It's not even sex trafficking. It's not a war in Ukraine. It's not who's going to win the next election. It's not Supreme Court decisions. And none of that stuff, all of those things are calamities. Every one of them, you know, it's not racism. Every one of them can take down all of humanity. Every one of them. I am not diminishing the impact of any of those. They're rich and real. But the greatest threat in the world is even bigger than all of those. And that is that we are no longer able to converse with each other. We are no longer open as a collective to speak our true voice with each other. We are no longer willing to actually communicate effectively with each other. Why is that the greatest threat? Because everything I just aimed, if we're going to get on the other side of it, requires open discourse. If we are unable to have discourse with our adversaries, with people who disagree with us, with people who have different contexts or different capacity or different understanding of how things roll, if we're not able to ever get there, we're toast. It's over. Put a fork in it. We're done. It's the end of humanity. It's a way it, it's sort of like a fire isn't the biggest problem. The biggest problem is, is there such thing as an extinguisher? Is there something to extinguish it? The extinguisher is speaking our true voice. So I eventually developed, you know, the find your true voice methodology, which I'm very proud of. And that's the course. The true voice course is meant to do that. And in that course, we use podcasting as the backdrop template. So some people don't realize that podcasting is by far the coolest platform to be able to share our very, very own self. What I'm taking advantage of today in front of you and in front of your audience and your listenership doesn't exist in any other platform. It doesn't exist in YouTube. It doesn't exist in TikTok. It doesn't exist in Instagram. It doesn't exist in any of the social medias, and it doesn't exist out here in the real world. The truth is you own this product, right? You are the owner of this exact interview. And we can say what we want here without very much fear about censorship or cancellation. Whereas, you know, I have friends who were canceled this week on Facebook and they don't have any clue what they did. Yeah. <laughs> they have no idea. It's just they have no idea what they even said. Yeah. And they're done. They're done. They're, they don't have friends anymore. They don't. They are done. Their account is closed forever. They're not getting it back. And, yes. you know, and 
that's not going to happen to me and you, at least not as of today on this podcast. That's not going to happen. So there's a lot of freedom here. And I love that course because it points to that. I've written a couple books also to the idea, True Voice. The idea is we spend so much time pretending to be someone that we're not in order to protect the people that we are. First of all, when you think about that, that is so absurd. That is so ludicrous. It is so preposterous, yet we all understand what I'm saying. That's yeah. what we do. And why? Because we're afraid to speak our true voice, a fear. What are we afraid of? We're afraid of disrupting. We're afraid of being misunderstood. We're afraid of being thrown off the island, of no longer being able to be in a particular group. We're afraid of losing a friend or losing a job or losing some status. So we end up saying things that even we don't believe. Yep. What the hell is that? <laughs> that's, not e that's not even a lie. That's beyond a lie. Yeah. Talk about a mind bender. And a mental right. health conundrum. <laughs> right. We say things that as we're saying them, we don't believe them. Mm -hmm. We have been pressed to that as humanity. Now, the truth is, there are ways to back off of that. There are ways to find our, our own authenticity and begin again to actually get in touch with those things that you really stand for and speak to those authentically, genuinely, honestly, boldly, like really speak to those. I have it, and this is really where your question was, and I've had a long answer, thanks for giving me the time, is that mental health issues are really a function of the inability to communicate effect effectively with others, either that you people aren't hearing you for who you are, or you're unable to speak or express yourself in a way that is aligned with who you are. It is sort of a self-expression deficiency, like self-expression deficiency disorder, you could say. You know, it's like it's not attention deficit and it's not social anxiety and it's not like something coming down from the heavens called depression or anxiety or even psychosis, you know, even hearing our own voice. We hear our voice. I promise you have a voice there. You do. You do. Try shutting oh, yeah. down that voice. Oh, that's tough. You're, you're, you're not doing it. You're not doing it. Some yeah. people are like, I don't have a voice. I was like, no, that, that's the voice you have. The one that's telling <laughs> you you don't have a voice. You know, it's like we have voices and yet we have the audacity to call people abnormal when we don't have a definition of what normal is. So what's really, really interesting more than anything is that mental health and therefore mental illness our conversations primarily that are variable. For instance, back in the day when I was in medical school and doing my residency, one of the primary indicators that someone was psychotic, like you would think that there were the indicators wouldn't change over time. Like a broken mm -hmm. arm is still a broken arm, right? You're right. A broken right. arm in 1970 is the same broken arm in 2023. It's yep. a broken arm. One of the primary indicators that someone was psychotic when I was going through medical school is that they would talk to the TV. Hmm. Interesting. What are, we, what are we doing right now? We're talking to a version of a television. Absolutely. Or... <laughs> Everybody is. Yeah. In fact, now one of the one, of, it's almost to the point that if you really want to be called psychotic, show that you don't know how to talk to a TV. It's, <laughs> it's actually gone to that point. 
And if you don't, if you don't know how to use your phone, if you don't know how to use your, um, your computer or your laptop or your tablet, you've obviously been under a rock long enough that we have to question your entire sanity. Mm -hmm. Like that's so twisted. And since there's so many paradigmatic shifts that have taken place over time, this conversation of mental illness is a variable. It's a variable. It is not a constant. And therefore, since it's a variable, it is subject to overwhelming um, transformation. A total transformation of the narrative is what's available. And that's what I'm a stand for, is actually altering that whole notion of what mental illness is so that we can start treating it in ways that don't include jamming Tommy with, um, you know, injectable chemical restraint cocktails. That's a a little bit about how I got to be who I am. (laughs) I, that's a fabulous story. And, and it opened up, I mean, I have so many things that, that now directions of of things I want to ask about probably the first being this, because uh, I'll, I'll make a statement as a naturopathic doctor who has prescribing rights in Washington state, I have prescribed more medicines than I ever thought I would as a naturopathic doctor. Now, how messed up is that? Exactly. I mean, it, it, it's it's incredibly disturbing to me and has worn on me for I, I mean, I can't tell you how many years and, and why I stepped back from full time practice because the pro, you know, your your sertralines and your, you know, like I'm like, I am prescribing antidepressants to people because their primary care doctors can't get them in. They're on them. I'm trying to bring them off all of this controversy of no, don't take that patient off that, you know, it's a lot, it's, it's fueled. It's, it's very, it's very intense. And one of the things that I I really want to bring up because my, my, my focus in, in practice is on perimenopausal and menopausal women. And this is a huge state at which it's, here's your antidepressant here, you know, and, and ADD seems to be the diagnosis for everyone. Help, help us to understand what is going on with that. Yeah, that's very interesting. So I saw, by the way, that you're a graduate of Bastyr, and I, mm-hmm. I, um, I love, I love the whole idea of Bastyr. When I first ran across it, I was looking for, you know, I was looking for something to put in my will somewhere that said, if you, if where would you send me? Where would I want to go if I, if something happened to me? You know, if mm-hmm. something happened, and I thought Bastyr was one of the places that came up in my list of like, you know, can I get someone who would at least take a holistic look at who I am rather than at the allopathic default? Now, looking at the, what you're saying here about ADD, this is fascinating, right? This idea that there, you know, this is a crazy world. Things are happening so fast and we are being asked to handle so many overwhelming phenomena and challenges every single day. And instead of really realizing that the system is over asking us, over demanding of us, the system is asking us to stay focused on shit that isn't even like relevant, right? They're asking us to stay focused on things that are not even interesting. And that if we can't stay focused on something that's not relevant or not interesting, we are willing to blame ourselves for the deficiency. Mm -hmm. The truth is the system is blown, is completely blown out of control. And the system being sort of the challenge of what it means to live in society. And I don't have it. I have it that, you know, if I have trouble completing tasks or I have trouble focusing or I have too many things, you know, too many um, tabs open on my computer or whatever people think is attention deficit, you know, like I can't, 
uh, keep my attention straight with or without hyperactivity, or the children can't keep their attention straight. That's a whole nother question. Looking back at that conventional system that little Freddie was in, that thing has really gone uh, a whole awry too. The teachers cannot keep the um, attention of the students because really what they're doing from the front of the room is trying to force a square peg into a round hole. They're, you know, they're at a chalkboard or whatever they're doing, even if they're online, and they're jamming things at these children that are not interesting or not stimulating or not embraceable or not enrollable. And the children are therefore not enrolling. And then the teachers have one last thing they can do, which is blame the child. It's sort of like blaming a log for burning in this fireplace behind me. You don't blame a log for burning in a fireplace. It is no sign of mental health to be well adjusted to a very sick society. And that's really what's important here. And Krishna Murthy said something like that. I have to give him credit. It's it's very fascinating to me the concept and and you had mentioned to it mentioned it before the self-diagnosis. And and I mean look at t- if you watch TV for 3 seconds right now which is about all I can handle is you've got all of <laughs> we the don't drug- even have one. I that's where I'm headed because it's every commercial is about a drug thing, trying to help you to think about how you have something wrong with you and, and self-diagnose. And mm-hmm. and I'll be honest. I mean, I'm sure you've seen this in the past. People will come into you and tell you that they're, they have this, they have that. Oh yeah. They have oh, this. Yeah. And it's like, wait, how do you know that? And then, then the next question for me is, can you send me to a psychiatrist so I can get some medications? And right. I'm just like, mm. No, exactly. And uh, so they have this, they have that. They've looked it up and they see that they have a big nose and they like water too much (laughs) and they got a big body and they have a good memory. And then they think, okay, I look at this criteria for elephant. I meet all the criteria for elephant. I am a flipping elephant. And now I walk around like an elephant. Now, let me say something as a disclaimer. It's very important that your listeners hear me. And that is for the small group of people out there who are feel like their diagnosis is working for them and their treatment is working for them and their medications are working for them, their therapies are working for them. They're very happy with their life, the way it's going inside the world of conventional mental health system. Please understand that I'm not asking you to change anything. I'm not arguing with you at all. There's no argument. If you have found something that works in your life, please continue to do it whatever it is, it's hard to find stuff that works in your life. And if that works for you, if you're certain it's the best it's ever going to get and you're getting proper treatment, then by all means, I do not change horses in midstream just because of something I say. I'm speaking to the hundreds of millions of people, though, who are in the boat of what you're talking about. You know, they come in entirely certain not only of what their diagnosis is, but exactly what medicine and doses they need to start and exactly what their therapy needs to be. And the thing is, is that psychiatry and mental health is the first subspecialty in all of medicine for which the customer becomes upset with the clinician when the clinician lets them know that there's nothing wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like yep. when I would tell people that they were normal and they didn't have any problems, or, you know, that they fell within the normal range of humanity, they would generally become very upset with me. Mm-hmm. And they would say, you know, I'm going to go find a real doctor. I'm going to go find somebody who knows that there's something wrong with me. People want to be confirmed that there's something wrong with them, primarily so they can relinquish the responsibility they have for performing in life less than they wish that they could. 
So they've hurt their, their spouse or they continue to do something that's against their better judgment, maybe some sort of addictive behavior, or maybe they're doing or saying things, you know, they continue to uh, be disrespectful or they continue to get in yelling matches at work or something like that. If they can get a diagnosis that actually pulls away their responsibility from being human, they will gladly latch on to that. Now, again, this is not about every single person, but people love if I look, I I'm a jerk many times per day. Or I do something that I don't that I'm, you know, not entirely happy about. Or I retrospectively look at something I said or did and just really think twice about it. If I can give you credit or something else credit for having done that to me, I will do that. I don't want responsibility for things that I'm not proud of. And most people really want to relinquish their responsibility. And therefore, they can say something like, I'm on the spectrum, or I have depression, or I have bipolar 2, or I have ADD, or I have the new one. It seems like the new sexy one these days is uh, chronic post-traumatic stress disorder, that people are very excited about that, this chronic post-traumatic stress disorder one. And, you know, the ADD and the social phobia and the... um you know, calling other people narcissists is another really good one too. Yep. That's common. For sure. For sure. I'm not a narcissist, but everyone else is all the people who are in my world who are screwing with me because they're too selfish. They're narcissists. Now, clearly I'm not a narcissist. I mean, how could I be a narcissist and make the diagnosis of being a narcissist? So narcissism is another one that's just being thrown around, heaved around from person to person, you know, narcissistic. He's so narcissistic or something like that, as if we have a unified understanding of that that term is because we don't. And if you look that up on the Internet, you will find supportive evidence for your way to say the word narcissism. But you won't find supportive evidence for a for a compacted way of what narcissism is. Because there's so many different side definitions of what that is. And that's true with chronic post-traumatic stress disorder and social phobia, autistic spectrum disorders, et cetera. Even the major depressions, the dysthymias, all the, every year there's new diagnoses that come out. And frequently they come out after the medications were developed to treat them. Interesting. Interesting with the medication department there. Yes, I, I would agree with you. I, I stopped reading the DSM at four. And I, yeah. I decided good, I'm, you, yeah, good you got there. Yeah, <laughs> I got to four and gave up. Um, you know, speaking of medications, let's talk about that for a second, because yeah, when I look at medications and, and things of this nature, I'm like, are we because there, there's a huge debate and, and I'm going to tie this into a couple of things and, and feel free to take this wherever you want to take it. There's a huge debate about homelessness. And should these individuals be on medication? Should they not? Is self-medication with, you know, fentanyl, et cetera, helpful or not? But, But really where I'm going with this is what dangers do we have with these medications in terms of blocking our true voice and our true potential? What are we, what are we looking at for folks that are technically using the medications, maybe because they've been prescribed them, maybe because you know, it's, it's something that docs like, Hey, let's just try this, but they're not feeling better. What are they blocking in terms of their true selves? Yeah. I think that that's a great question. I think that there's a massive muting, stifling and muffling that happens with these medicines. I think that, you know, that's the general intention of the medicines. For instance, if you go in and you want your depression relief, 
these medicines might indeed relieve your depression, but they also relieve your ability to have any mood whatsoever. Mm-hmm. They just totally blunt everything. Yeah, libido's gone for sure. And, and any of that, and it's not just that. It's like, you know, you can't feel sad. You can't feel happy. You can't feel good. You can't feel you know angry. You can't feel anything. And the truth is, if you come right back in and look for depression, it's not there anymore. But nothing's there. You know, nothing's there. So you could say, yeah, that's a cure. I have a story that a little bit allegory about that. It's like um, if I had a mosquito bite on my elbow and I came to you and you said, you know, I have somebody in uh, North Seattle that's a that's a uh, expert in mosquito bites on elbows and I'd like to send you to him. I'm like, OK, awesome, Janine. Let's see. So I make an appointment. I go to his office and I go in there and he, you know, takes down his spectacles and he's got his white shirt, white coat and everything. He's like, let's see that elbow. And I show down and show him his elbow. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's a mosquito bite. All right. I've seen a lot of mosquito bites. That's that's a mosquito bite on an elbow right there. I was like, I know. And it's great. He goes, I'm the best in the world at curing those. I'm like, okay, that's why Janine sent me here. So let's go. He goes, it's only going to hurt for a moment. It's like, okay, let's rock it. I want this. This mosquito bites in my way every night and I can't get it to go away. He says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut off your arm at the shoulder. Okay. (laughs) And you're like, okay, let's do it. As long as it cures the mosquito bite. So we do it. And then he says, come back in two weeks. We'll check. And when we come back in two weeks, he looks for that mosquito bite. And it's simply not there. A cure, indeed. (laughs) But what's the cure? What's the cost? The cost is you don't have a flipping arm anymore. And so when you speak to a true voice, what's happening frequently is our concept, our ask, our um, access to other dimensions, to spirituality, to what love really might be, to our own meditative qualities, to our, you know, to our capacity to, you know, for mindfulness, et cetera, is also shaved down. And we are giving up our capacity to be creative in many cases. You know, maybe we no longer playing music or doing art or dancing or, you know, singing or gardening or those kinds of self self-expressive writing, etc. It takes away a lot of things. These medicines are blunting agents in the most for the most part, which is why we took them in the first place. So the concept of self-medication, for instance, you mentioned fentanyl or alcohol or any of the street drugs. There, it's not really self-medication to get rid of the problem. The truth is the medications then can create a cycle to give you the problems that they get rid of. This idea that they per- perpetuate the symptoms they're marketed to treat is really important. So the only way to, cut, to actually manage coming down or, or withdrawing, if you will, from any of these medications in many cases is to get more medication of the same. And that cycle is the addictive cycle that we're well aware of. And we call that self-medication, but really what it is is an explanation for how um, the perpetuation of symptoms is caused by the drug itself. And because of that, uh, the only way to manage it is to actually find more of the drug. Now, with the psychiatric medicines, there's another piece here, which is that when you come off the medicines, It's almost built into most of these medicines that you get a spike of the symptoms it was marketed to treat in the first place, even if you didn't have those symptoms in the first place. So you start taking antidepressants 
and you're not that depressed and you take them for a while and then you decide you're not going to have them. You're not going to do it anymore. So you come off the medicine and you get this massive spike of depression, more depressed than you've ever been. And you're given the explanation that your depression has been cruising along in the background the whole time. And this is just where it is naturally, rather than the more obvious explanation, which is coming off of medicine causes depression. It has nothing to do with a background worsening of some condition called depression. It has everything to do with upon discontinuation, you get a spike of the symptoms you're marketed to treat. The experience subjectively at that moment is, I don't want to be on these medicines anymore. I would rather not be on them, but coming off them is worse than staying on them. So therefore, given those two choices, I will go back and continue to take medicine because I don't want a return of these symptoms that I just experienced upon discontinuation. That's also a phenomena inside of the psychopharmacology industry that is it's pretty prevalent and pretty, pretty um, predictable. Oh, I've seen I've seen it over and over again in a cycle where you know, in the natural medicine world, we're trying to get in other things that would kind of mimic and try to use it to, to like 5-HTP, for example, yeah. is just one thing, you know, to try to mimic. But I, the ones that I have the hardest time with is some of the anti-anxiety, but also some of the ADD meds like Contrave and, and, and yeah. things are not, Contrave is a whole- Concerta. Concerta. Yes. <laughs> I'm a naturopath, folks, so don't- That's okay. <laughs> but yes, Concerta, I- the blood pressure, the heart rate, the racing heart, this, these are some of the things that, you know, for those of you guys who are listening, it's, it's things to think about in terms of, yeah, the uptick in symptoms. And then it it scares people. And then we have ER visits and urgent care visits. And, and can you speak to a little bit of the ADD coming off the ADD meds a little bit and, and how, you know, maybe we'll talk a little bit about how you're working with folks um, or you have worked with folks in the past to kind of come off of these types of things and, and, do it in a way that is safe, but also in a way that we can move past the, the uptick in symptoms. It's really difficult. So um, yeah, I uh, one of the monikers I picked up over time is this notion of undoctor. Mm-hmm. And as the undoctor, I undiagnose, unmedicate, and then undoctrinate people, pulling them out of the system that led to the problem in the first place. Now, What's really important to get is I have really found that some people, it's very difficult to get some people off of medicines. Why? Mm -hmm. It's because they have already determined that they're an elephant. And so they already know that they need elephant level care. And so when you pull the elephant stuff away, all they want to know is what are you going to replace this with to continue to help me and fix me? When that question persists, I am at a loss. I can't because what I really want these people to know is there might be nothing inherently wrong with them. That's what I want to get. So I do much better with people who are considering coming into the system than I do with people who have already bought into the fact that there's something wrong with them. So walking people off the Concertas or the Adderalls, the Ritalins, the Dextrines, even the Shateras and the um, anti-ADHD medicine realm is not so simple because there is physiological, um, you know, uh, kickback and you do get like a tachycardia at times, or you can have like little bouts of, um, blood pressure increases or decreases. And those are really scary. You know, those at the moment, they, though, they feel really weird. You know, maybe they're like, you know, that's a silent killer. The idea that your blood pressure is going to go up. And so people don't want to go through that experience. 
What they can learn, however, is that by going through the experience and monitoring closely, as long as they're willing to buy that this is a medication effect and not a return of their own body's effect, you can walk off those medicines and in a few weeks have those symptoms actually be relieved because it's an acute symptomology. It's something that happens in a couple of weeks and over time really does disappear. Now, it's not simple and I can't promise that for everybody. I can't promise coming off a of medicine is gonna be easy. And I can't promise that it'll have no physiological effects. I would never do that. But the idea is, is that it is typically limited, time limited, and you can get on the other side of it safely with the help of support of naturopaths, for instance, help of, you know, supplemental care, bioequivalent care, whatever kind of work you're using um, inside of NAD. That's one of the, uh, another successful recent surge. Um, I have some friends up in Seattle, actually, who are working <laughs> with that. And, um, um, you know, there are other ways to mitigate the uh, problems that arise that have nothing to do with the actual ADHD medicines. Huge, huge. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I think one of the other things that is really, really important, and I kind of want to bring it back in again, because we've, we've kind of touched on it a couple of times here, is that identifying with an elephant or identifying with the diagnosis to the point that it becomes part of your identity. Right. And, and this is, like you were mentioning, one of the hardest parts, because we're almost de-identifying someone and trying to figure out, okay, now who are you? And this is when I saw your your program that you have your course. I was like, what a great way, yes, for podcasters, but also for folks to really find out who really they are without the diagnoses, without the the doctor side of it, and and really bring yourself into to who who you truly are. So tell us a little bit about how you've worked with clients, how you've worked in, in the course with folks and, and how you're helping folks to, to really find out who they truly are on a really deep level. So right. that they're not identifying as elephants and things of that nature. Exactly. So it's a great question. Thank you. I have two courses and I'm not sure if the who are you trailer is I think the one you're talking about that mm -hmm. comes with the healing, the healer course. Mm -hmm. That's healing the healer dot online. And that's a great course. I'm really, really proud of that course. It's a 10 module course with, uh, um, you know, with uh, 10 lessons as well. And I, it was really fun to create and it was created right here. You'll recognize the fireplace behind me when you watch the course mm -hmm. and you can find that at healing the healer dot online. Now, the other course I have is the one I mentioned earlier, which is the True Voice course. The truevoicecourse.com is a more comprehensive course. It has um, six modules. It has 18 lessons. It has 54 prompts and it has a 72 page workbook. And it's a 12 week course that comes with a mastermind. And the mastermind is with like minded individuals who are utilizing my book, The Creative Eight, which allows for creativity as a form of self expression to move people forward. Now, here's the thing. The, when you say helping people find their true voice, even though that is the title of my book, um, see right over there and kind of you can see it. <laughs> Got it. I see it. I see it. Nice. Nice. Uh, Strategically placed. <laughs> um, the, uh, you can see that um, the, um, You know, the, the, 
you don't have to find anything. Right. There's nothing to find. That same little Freddie in his playpen watching my brothers and my parents deal with each other and falling in love with the notion of communication is there for you too. That who you were when you were three years old is still here. Your true voice is actually sits with that person. And it's been with you the whole time. Why are you here? What is important to you? What matters to you? Usually it's in the form of, you know, to create friends, to have love, to accept other people, to be loved, to be heard for who you really are, to be respectable, respectful of others, to be compassionate and patient and forgiving, all those things that as kids naturally arose. So when finding our voice, what we're really doing is we're rediscovering our true voice. And the courses are built to actually shave off all the muck, all the mud, all the cobwebs, all the rust that has we have allowed to land on us over time. And the crack in the cement has gotten so large over time, and we've never gone back to repair it. So the, what these courses do is they mend the cement cracks some, and they allow us through you know implementing incremental acts of of increased. Um, self-expression um, to arise so that we are now becoming more consistent with who we really are. No longer pretending to be someone that we're not in order to protect the person that we are. Again, how ludicrous is that, that we all do that? Like that's <laughs> the most preposterous shit you could possibly imagine. <laughs> pretending to be somebody you're not in order to protect the person you are. Not only is it silly, and and like absurd, it doesn't even work. You're still going to be dismissed. You're still going to be thrown off the island. You're still going to be haters. You're still going to be muffled and muted. That's still going to happen. So you might as well really get in touch with what really matters to you, which you already know. Underneath all the muck, you do know what what matters to you. And so does everyone. And it's all very similar. More than anything else, we just want to be respected. We want to be accepted. For, you know, we want to be heard. We want to be heard for who we are and who we're not. Mm -hmm. We want to be able to make a difference in this world. We want this life to actually matter. You know, Henry David Thoreau said, uh, the mass of men go, go through life in quiet desperation and go to their grave with their song still in them. And, you know, that's there's nothing more tragic than that. Who would want to live a life where nobody ever got to know who you were? Like there's a possibility to make incremental shifts and those shifts become addicting. Not only do they create a space for you, you start getting the value of not having to remember what you said yesterday because all you have to do is be yourself. You don't have to lie to yourself or anyone else. And not only do you get that, but you get the, um, um, oh, I, I'm sorry. I forgot, forgot how I was going to go with this, but you, you know, the, the like being yourself and um, really stepping into what's really important to you. And that's really critical. I, I think it's I mean, it's it's vital. And I think that's why we have a lot of medical practitioners like the healing, the physician, you know, healing, the healer course. I think that's why we have so many docs, medical providers as, as a whole who are quite sick in many ways, and also really struggling with anxiety, depression, things of that nature. I mean, I will fully admit that I had to step out of my practice because of the parameters that the health system was placing on me. And I was like, I, 
this is not me. And, and I, you know, even to this day, still working within some of the insurance realm, I, I can't be me. And, 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 and I say the word, I don't want to say the word can't because that's not true. I can be me, but I think this is where a lot of, of medical providers are really struggling and why we might be losing so much of the help that could be useful here. Right. Yeah, it's a, there is there is a real um, a real risk that we are using losing our capacity as a you know as a collective to generate help um, by actually you know kind of lying to ourselves, like not taking not taking what we know to be true and putting it out in front of us. It becomes really interesting, um, you know, when we. When we start speaking our true voice, it be, there is an addictive quality to it. Like we start getting that it's easier to actually speak our true voice than it is to um, make stuff up. And uh, it becomes it, we open up gates for other people to speak their true voice in our presence. And it becomes easier and more interesting, almost addictive to actually begin to take incremental changes with the people that matter to us and speak more of our truth. It's it's incredible. I agree with you. I agree with you. And and I do wonder, you know, where where we're headed in in the realm of mental health, whether it is for, you know, healers, providers or whether we're looking at general health, because I do think being able to to speak yourself, your, your, your truth and your voice is huge. And I love the idea of podcasting as it. That's why I'm here, um, because same thing, the not being able and this is something you brought up right away, not being able to have a legitimate conversation, not an argument, not a I'm on this side, I'm on this side department, just a legitimate conversation has really been lost. And I love the podcast because we can talk about all these things and and not have that censorship one, but two, the the freedom to speak how we need to. And, and I really do think that a lot of folks are suffering because of this afraid being afraid to speak because of being censored and losing jobs and things of that nature like you're, you're talking about right yeah people for sure are being muted and muffled and stifled and those are you know feeling themselves as muted muffled and stifled when in fact they're it's really a self-generated job and the, the truth is you they're still speaking they're just no longer speaking their truth and they're saying that that's because they're muffled and they're not muffled because if they were muffled entirely, they wouldn't be able to say anything. Right. They're ending up changing their baseline story to meet what they think are the parameters of what's acceptable. And that's, you know, that's a really hard way to go through life, um, trying mm -hmm. to fit someone else's mold that you don't even understand. So that's really important. Absolutely. 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 Where, where were you, Dr. Fred, when I was like 14 and really starting to, to go into these things? Darn it. Well, speaking of that, I think a lot of folks are probably thinking right now, like, okay, this is great info. You know, they, they want to probably know about welcome to humanity.net too, to kind of see everything. But one of the things that I was seeing too, is, is that you have a film project in the works. Where's that at right now? Where, what's happening there? Yeah, so the Global Madness Project was really something that was, you know, it was given a launch uh, before the um, pandemic crunched. And um, the idea was that I was going to be sort of the Anthony Bourdain of um, mental health and that I was going to go around the world and see how mental health is dealt with in multiple different corners of the universe, multiple, you know, from Australia to Zimbabwe to 
um, you know, um, Norway and then, you know, Arkansas and basically see that in these different pockets, uh, mental health is dealt with differently. When you start getting that there's two definitions to the same word or even more than one definition to the same concept, you start seeing that none of the definitions work. So the idea was ultimately to disintegrate our notion of what mental illness is. What is the actual problem? We could see that what in one country or one region is seen as mental illness in another region is seen as like shamanic gift or mm -hmm. seen as like um, a special uh, attribute. And, um, you know, we start doing that. We start going around the, the world and seeing that mental illness is a regional phenomena. Then we start seeing that there's no true definition of it. And the whole idea of mental illness as a global phenomenon then disappears. Now, when we can do that, we start seeing that maybe there's nothing wrong with us in the first place. You know, what really are we looking at? And we look at global madness. When we look at the idea of, you know, who's making the call that there's something wrong with you? That's a really important question. And, you know, we start really looking at that openly and honestly, and we start running into some, some you know, extremely interesting conflicts of, of reasoning. Like, what's really wrong with you that makes you think that there's something wrong with you, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, total conundrum of like, what's really wrong that makes you think so? I know so many people including, you know, myself for many years battled with that and, and really, uh, you know, something I was going to imagine just feeling like they were on the fringe of, you know, why do I not fit in or, or why do I have these different thoughts and, and what's so wrong with me that makes it, you know, like you just said. And, and so I think there are so many folks, Dr. Fred, that are going to love this, this interview and really hone in on like, okay, there is something I can do. And in podcasting is, has been a great thing for me, folks. I think it, it, it just to speak my truth, but also share. And I love connecting with people. So that always feeds that feel for me too. So I'd like to know um, on, on your end, Dr. Fradley, obviously your website, obviously your courses, how can folks connect with you best to learn from you, to gain insight, to hear you speak? Give us all the scoop. Where, yeah. where can they connect? Yeah, I love I love speaking. I have a great time with that. Um, you know, that's uh, you can ask any of my elementary school teachers as well. I've always enjoyed speaking my truth. And I, I'm glad to speak in groups. I'm glad to speak uh, to small groups or medium sized groups, even large groups about what's really so inside the world of mental health and the revolution that we're about to face with the idea that mental health, the way it's been done up until this time has now reached an important um, turning point. It's possible that we can start looking at other ways to deal with each other that don't go down the default system of how we deal with mental health now. With someone diagnosing you as having something wrong and then sending you through a hospital or through a whole system that is ineffective in the first place, like that does not create any kind of healing or cure, but actually seems to maybe at least even in and of itself seems to slow stuff down. Mm -hmm. If you really, if you, you know, like slow what down, slow a deteriorating process that's not stoppable. That's not even true. You and I both know there is access to treatments and access to redirections that can give us back our own mental health. It yep. is not a permanent, it's not a permanent phenomena, this concept of being mentally imbalanced at all. So, you know, the best way to really look for me is probably at my Dr. Fred 
um, uh, drfred360.com. Okay. drfred360.com is a place where you can get all the pieces of who I am. And, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of freebies there. There's, uh, you can get access to free access to my books, uh, the two books that I've written, as well as, uh, um, access to a couple of the, um, uh, to my podcast history. And I really love just kind of, um, opening up, um, you know, the, the idea of like taking courses or of having a, like, you know, like. You, taking courses can be very helpful, but another thing that can be helpful is just having conversation, having open conversations where we can really talk about working together, either individually or as a group, is something that becomes some you know really available inside of this world. And um, so I'm hoping that people would be interested in that. And in drfred360.com, there's ways to contact me, and uh, you know we can talk about. Um, the, the courses I lead or the individual work that's done or the group work that's done or anything that I've done in, you know, in the past to uh, assist people in finding their true voice and bringing it forward. Awesome. Awesome. And I know one of your, your freebies that I, I dove into right away has guys, there's videos in addition to some really amazing questions that I, I had to sit with for a while. So they're great thought provoking questions. They're not just little, and, and they're not things that Dr. Fred, they're things that I hadn't asked myself before ever. So right. they're, they're not those traditional like questions that folks will see. So I want folks to really understand that. I'm guessing it took you some time to, to come up with what would be the best questions here or, or. Yeah, I guess it's so, you know, it's that uh, you go through life and then you pick up the good ones, you know, the <laughs> low hanging fruit, and then you put them in the list, you know, that's, the best there, way to do it. Yeah. There you go. So folks, I'll have how to get a hold of Dr. Fred at the drfred360.com. Also welcome to humanity.net will be on there. Well, for you guys who are budding podcasters, by all means, join us, come hang out, love to have people on for conversations, but let's get you the info at drjkrausnd.com. Everything's going to be there. There'll be Fred's freebies as well, because I enjoyed the, the one I'm working through right now. I enjoyed and, and made my husband do it too. And we're finding out some incredible stuff about each other. So beautiful, great work, Dr. Fred. I am looking forward to keeping the conversation going with you as well, because I think this topic is so important and, and vital to, dare I say, helping sur humanity survive in a way that's sustainable for sure. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah, it is. It, now's the time. If we don't take a handle on this now, it's it's like one minute to 12. You know, if we don't take a handle on this right now, then we can just call just, you know, pull down the curtain. It's, if we don't put our handle on our collective mental health and actually take some bites out of it and start looking at directions where we can work together and work with ourselves um, in a way that is like, uh, you, you know, um, in, in like internally consistent, then um, we might as well just put a fork in it because it really, it, it's an urgent time in our, in the, in the, um, in the path of humanity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. So folks, join us, get to know Dr. Fred Moore, and we will have all the info at drjkrausnd.com. Thanks again, Dr. Fred Moss, for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Janine. Really great. Hey, fellow health junkie. Thanks for listening to the Health Fix podcast. If you enjoyed tuning in, please help support me to get the word out about the podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review, and just get that word out. Thanks again for listening.